the room grew still as she made her way to Jesus. She stumbles at the tears that make her blind. She felt such pain. Some spoke in anger, heard folks whisper, there's no place here for her kind. Still on she came through the shame that flushed her face until at last she knelt before his feet and though she spoke no words everything she said was heard as she poured her love for the master from her box of alabaster I've come to my praise on him like oil from Mary's alabaster box. Don't be angry if I wash his feet with my tears and I dry them with my hair. You weren't When he wrapped his loving arms around me And you don't know the cost Of the oil in my alabaster box I can't forget the way life used to be I was a prisoner of the sin that had me I spent my days, poured my life without measure into a little treasure box I thought I'd found. Until the day when Jesus came to me, healed my soul with the wonder of his touch. I'm giving back to him all the praise he's worthy of. I've been forgiven, and that is why I love him so much. I've come to pour my praise on him like oil from Mary's alabaster bar. My tears and I dry them with my hair. You weren't there the night he found me. You did not feel what I felt when he wrapped his loving arms around me. Oh
Thank you. I have power now. You don't know the cost of the oil in my alabaster box. I, I heard that song the first time when we actually, we, we had taken a trip from Trinity Fellowship to Texas Stadium to hear Billy Graham preach back in, I think that was 2001, somewhere around there. And uh, I, I was saved through a Billy Graham telecast and I had never gotten to hear him in person. And the day that we went, C.C. Winans came out and sang that song. And from that day on, that just has been a song that I love to sing. I especially like to sing it in prisons. Um, I have been doing prison ministry off and on since mid-1990s. Uh, I was invited to go to the Win Unit in uh, Huntsville. Back then, I didn't know very much about prisons. I thought there was only one in Texas. Uh, There's actually about 115. We are the second largest next to California and China in the world uh, for incarcerating people. And I, over the years, have had a number of different things that I've done in prisons. One of those is I, I spent about three years on staff with First Baptist Dallas as their director of prison ministries. And as part of that, I was invited to go down to the Cofield unit in Tennessee Colony. Uh, there's a group of prisons down there that are among the, the really rough ones. There are some, you know, no prison is good, but some are worse than others. And uh, this particular group of prisons is where a lot of the, the worst offenders are, uh, are kept. And uh, so I went down to do chalk art and music, and I may well have even sung that song. I don't, I don't remember. But uh, this is one of the old prisons. They actually have a, a chapel building, and that's the chapel that I was in, uh, Cofield Chapel. I noticed that they don't have any pews there right now, so I don't know what they were doing when they took that picture. But, uh, but it's, it's like a huge church building. Uh, got a raised platform and, the, the, you know, the whole nine yards, a, a beautiful, beautiful place. And this particular prison was so large that uh, they had uh, two uh, services on Sunday morning. And so the chaplain kind of briefed me ahead of time what it was going to be like. He said, the, uh, uh, the first service, pretty much everybody that's there wants to be there. He said, in the second service, not so much. He said, you'll actually see the line of demarcation. Uh, the, the ones who want to be there will be up in the front. The ones that are there for any number of other reasons, like air conditioning, which they don't have in their cells, uh, just a chance to get out and read the newspaper. Uh, and uh, you know, when we got to that second service, boy, you know, the chaplain was right. It, it was, you know, the, it couldn't have been any clearer if they had been wearing different colored clothing, because, I mean, the first, Ten rows or so, everybody's there. They are engaged, and and then there's the other half. And I don't remember too much about that, but I remember one inmate that was uh, you know about halfway back, and he'd had you know tattoos all over his face, uh, and and he just looked scary. And I never did get to to meet him, but I could tell he was one of the ones that wasn't really there because he was there for the, the service. But uh, in, yeah, and, and when I do a prison service like that, I don't usually get to interact very often with the, the inmates, uh, simply because uh, you're, you're escorted in and you know, you're there to do your program, then they bring the inmates in, you do your program, they send the inmates out. The most I usually get to do is stand at the door and shake hands and, and you know, talk. Uh, but um, 
The one group that I do get to interact with is the praise team and a choir or other musicians because uh, they come in early and they stay late. So in this particular case, they actually had a men's choir, a uh, fairly good size, 10, 20 men. And in between the services, I had a chance to talk with some of the, uh, some of the inmates. And this one man came up to me, tall African-American man, had to be like 6'5", six, 6'6". Six, six. I mean, I, you know, I looked up to, to him. He was just huge. And when he came up, there were tears running down his face. And he said, I'm in here, and I, use, I, I never ask why they're in there. Most of the time they don't volunteer, but he did. He said, I'm in here because I murdered my wife and my girlfriend. And, you know, at, at that point it was like, okay. <laughs> but he's part of the praise team, okay, so this is good. Uh, <laughs> but he said, I'm in here because I murdered my wife and my girlfriend. And he said, you don't have any idea what it means to us for you to come in and, and do this kind of, of program uh, to, you know, to help us you know, connect with God. You know, prisons are a place where you are constantly reminded of your sin. Inmates have a, it looks like a driver's license, but it's a, it's a plastic, you know, laminated card that has their picture on it and written in bold letters across the front is the word offender. You know, you never get to forget when you're in prison. You're reminded every single day, I'm an offender. And it's a place where for many, there is no hope. It's a place where for many, like the woman in that song, they're, you know, they're looked down on, the, the correctional officers, other people. Oh, these are offenders. These are people who have broken the law and done horrible things. I murdered my wife and my girlfriend. Done other horrible things. And they're cast out. And that's kind of what we're looking at today. We're going to be in Luke chapter 7 again. There are four little vignettes that take place in Luke chapter 7. I'm going to give you a quick recap of uh, a couple of them. I, I mentioned the first little vignette that happens in the first part of Luke 7 is where the uh, centurion asks Jesus to heal his servant. And the centurion doesn't come to Jesus in person. He sends a delegation because he says, I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof. And Jesus, of course, marvels at that because he said, I've never seen this kind of faith. He said, the centurion says, you can heal my servant just with a word. And, and Jesus turns and talks to the crowd with him. He says, I, I've never seen this kind of faith in all Israel. And then what we looked at last time where Jesus travels, that first incident happened in Capernaum. The next one happens in Nain, uh, about a day's journey away, and Jesus travels there. And you remember we talked last week that they traveled down to that village of Nain, and as, as they got there, there was Jesus and his disciples and a huge crowd uh, with him, and they would have been very happy and excited because they had already seen one miracle. Who knows how many other miracles they'd seen. They're going, and they run head-on into another crowd that has the polar opposite emotion because this is a funeral procession coming out of the city. And Jesus stops 
the funeral procession, and he sees the widow, the mother who has just lost her only son and her only means of support. And he says, don't cry. And then he just talks to the man in the coffin and says, young man, I say to you, get up. And he sits up and starts talking. And now you have two happy groups, but there's also a group in there that is just amazed because they say a great prophet has risen among us and God has surely visited his people. Well, the next part, and we're not looking in detail at this part of Luke 7, but the next vignette that you get in Luke 7 is two of John's disciples, well, not two, but some of John's disciples were with, evidently with that group, and they, they saw some of the things that Jesus did. They saw this resurrection. They go back to John. Now remember, John is in prison at this point. They go back to John and they tell him what's going on. And then John delegates two of them to go and ask Jesus, are you the one who is to come? Or should we look for someone else? And you know whether John was having doubts or whether he, Jesus just wasn't you know, doing what he thought Jesus would do, you know, Scripture doesn't really go into the, de the details, but Jesus kind of tells the two followers of John, hang, hang with us today. And Jesus heals, and he casts out demons, and they already know about the resurrection. And then he says, go back and tell John what you've seen, what you've heard, and tell him, you know, don't, don't stumble. Don't stumble at me. And so, you know, they go back. But in the middle of that little section, Luke gives us a little aside. And it's kind of an interesting aside. He says, the people, and then, and then he emphasizes, even the tax collectors justified God by being baptized by John. Now, different translations will have it differently, but, but the word actually means justified God. In other words, he said, the people who had heard John's baptism. Because remember, in that little vignette, Jesus, after he sends his followers of John back, he talks to the crowd. And he says, what did you go out, out into the wilderness to see? And he, he talks about how John is more than a prophet and how the least person in the kingdom is greater than John. But he says, the people, even the tax collectors, justified God by being baptized by John. But then he says, and this is again Luke's little aside in there, almost a parenthetical statement. Then he says, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law rejected God's purpose for themselves because they weren't baptized by John. Now I want you to hold on to that because basically what Luke is doing is he's showing us two responses to the ministry of John. The people, the common people, the outcasts, the people nobody cared about, including the tax collectors. He wants to make sure the IRS is included. He said, they justified God by being baptized by John. The Pharisees rejected him. Now that's important because we've seen two reactions to John's ministry. Now we're going to see two reactions to Jesus' ministry. And the fourth vignette is the song that I just sang. It's where a woman comes and does something 
To call it politically incorrect would be a gross understatement. She comes in and worships Jesus in a way that was not particularly socially acceptable. Here's the story. This is what happens. One of the Pharisees, this is Luke 7, 36. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him, and he went to the Pharisee's house and, in, and reclined at the table. So here's the setup. Now, I'm assuming that we're still in Nain, because there, uh, Luke has not given us any change of location. So we're going to assume that they're still there. And remember, Jesus and his entourage have come into the, the city and kind of shaken things up because they just raised, he just raised a man from the dead. So there's a Pharisee in that town, and he's hearing the proclamations of the people. What were they saying? A great prophet has risen among us, and God has surely visited his people. God has come to help us. And so the Pharisee invites Jesus to come eat with him. He's going to investigate. Now, at this point, we don't need to assume that he's necessarily investigating with a negative purpose, like he's trying to find something bad about Jesus. He might even be thinking things through in the way a Nicodemus was. Well, is this guy really a prophet? I mean, I, I, I've heard some amazing things that he's done. I'm going to have him over for a meal, and we'll discuss it. So... That print's too small for me to read. I'm going to have to default to my iPad here. Let me get back here. Now, in verse 37, it says, A woman who had lived a sinful life in that town, when she learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume. And as she stood behind him at his feet, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and she wiped them with her hair and kissed them and poured perfume on them. So they, they, they sit down to dinner. Now back then, you know, it wasn't like it is today. You know, you have somebody over to your house, you don't expect the entire neighborhood to come in and watch. But in the culture of that day, a meal like that was an open invitation for people to gather around and listen in on the conversation. And they may have even been eating in an outside you know, court, courtyard. So the Pharisee is there. Jesus is there. Probably some of the Pharisee's friends, maybe some other Pharisees there. doesn't really say. But as this meal is going on, everything does get kind of quiet. Because a lady comes in. That's not unusual. Ladies were not invited to sit at the table, incidentally. This was only men. But this lady comes in, and she's on the periphery watching, but she doesn't stop there. It says she comes up, and she has an alabaster jar, alabaster box, whatever. And she comes up, and she kneels at Jesus' feet, and she's crying. The tears are just flowing down her face. Jesus' feet are getting wet. She dries his feet with her hair, and she takes that ointment, and she anoints his feet. Now, why did she anoint his feet? Normally, you would have anointed the head, 
And it's possibly just because of the way, you know, if there was a big group there, it's possible she couldn't get to Jesus' head. We don't know. But we know that she anoints his feet with oil. You could have probably heard a pin drop in that room. And you could have probably felt the indignation as people see what this lady is doing because in their opinion, she was no lady. Now Luke doesn't tell us what her sinful life was. And so we can't really assume. Some say, well, she was a prostitute. Well, maybe. Could be that she'd committed other sins. Could be that she was the wife of somebody who was a notorious sinner. We really don't know. We just know that the neighbors did not like her. And when they saw her, they said, what is she doing in here? This is no place for her. Incidentally, that song calls her Mary. Now, I'm usually a stickler for lyrics, being accurate. And the reason that song calls her Mary is, is sometimes uh, you'll see commentators who will identify this either as Mary of Bethany. And by doing that, they're, they're kind of combining this story with the one near the end of Jesus' life when Mary of Bethany anoints Jesus. And there are enough differences there that I don't think that's the same incident. Others will identify her as Mary Magdalene, but there's really no reason to identify her as Mary Magdalene. We don't know who she was. I get away with that song by saying, Mary was a very common name back then, so, you know, her name could have been Mary. But whoever this lady was, she comes in and she does the unspeakable. And the Pharisee makes a judgment as he's watching. Remember, he's trying to ascertain who is this guy? Is this Jesus really a prophet? Is he an Elijah and Elisha that God has sent us? That says, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, you know, he's thinking this, if this man were a prophet, he would have known what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. So the wheels are turning, and he said, well, I think I've got my evidence. This woman's a sinner. If Jesus really was a prophet, he would know that, and he would know what kind of person she is, and he would never let her touch him. He would push her away. Well, Jesus knows what he's thinking. And so he says, Simon, I've got something to ask you. And Simon the Pharisee says, okay, say it, Lord. He said, a certain man, a certain money lender, had two clients. And those two clients owed him a sum of money. One owed 50 denarii, about two months' wages. The other owed 500 denarii, about two years almost, wages. Neither could pay. And the money lender forgave them both. Now, which one do you think would love him more? Well, that's one of those no-brainer parables that you don't have to scratch your head over. And Simon says, well, I suppose. And, you know, I wonder if that I suppose is more of a reluctance, like Simon realizes, eh, he got me on that one. Well, I suppose the one to whom he forgave more would love him more. And Jesus said, you've judged rightly. He said, you know, do you, do you see this woman? 
you know, when I came into your house, you gave me no water for my feet, but she has washed my feet with her tears and dried them with her hair. He said, you didn't give me any kiss, but since I came, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You know, you talk about an awkward situation. It would be awkward today. Can you imagine being at a, a banquet? And this woman who has a bad reputation in town comes in and, and you know, a church banquet, the pastor's there, maybe a special guest speaker, and, and, and she comes up and she takes the sh guest speaker's shoes off and socks off and starts, you know, washing his feet and crying and anointing him and uncomfortable. From the time I came in, she hasn't stopped kissing my feet. He said, you didn't anoint my head with oil, but she's anointed my feet with ointment. Now, see, all three of those things were just common courtesies back then. They weren't any big deal. You know, you walked around wearing sandals, roads were dusty, your feet were dirty when you came to the house. It was a common courtesy to give somebody at least a basin to clean their feet. In a wealthy house, they would often have a slave that would do that. A kiss of greeting. You now, we shake hands or we do a hug. Back then... It was, you know, kind of like you know, Europe or uh, Eastern countries where they, you know, they give a kiss on the cheek. He said, you didn't do that either. It would be like, you know, me walking in and you offer your hand and I don't shake it. Okay, not necessarily meaning anything, but it sort of gives you a feel for the attitude. And, and again, the anointing, he said, you didn't anoint my head. Again, a common courtesy. Why? Well, they didn't have deodorant back then, for one thing. And you got sweaty. They didn't have air conditioning. And you couldn't just always, you know, run out and wash up. Didn't have a, a washroom in the house. Anointing the head was, again, another courtesy to make things more comfortable. He didn't even do that. And he, Jesus said, she's done all of these things. And then Jesus says, therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And Jesus looks at the lady, and he says, your sins are forgiven. And then we see another reaction, you know, the people at the table, who is this? Maybe some of these who had seen the resurrection, maybe seen some other miracles, or wondering, is this a prophet? Is he, you know, who is this guy? And then Jesus has you know, the gall to look at this lady and say, your sins are forgiven. And they say, who is this? They even forgive sins. How does he do that? And he says to her, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. What's going on there? Well, remember, I, I, I spoke from John, or not John, Luke 7, 29 and 30, where we see Luke's little parenthesis about John the Baptist. Remember, there were two responses to John the Baptist, Jesus' forerunner. Luke says in, in verse 29, the people, parenthesis, even the tax collectors, justified God by being baptized by John. That was the positive reaction to John's ministry. He said, the Pharisees and the lawyers 
rejected God's purpose for themselves by not having been baptized by him. Uh, a messenger of God had come. In that passage where Jesus is talking about John, Jesus says, he is the forerunner. He is the one who was supposed to come before me. And he said, the people who heard him reacted two ways. Some heard and they welcomed the message, even though John was not known to be a politically correct preacher. He tended to call his congregation broods of vipers. He told it like it was. The, Pharisees, or the, the tax collectors, the people, they embraced John. The Pharisees and the lawyers said, nah. We want nothing to do with John the Baptist. Two reactions. In this passage, we see two responses to Jesus, and they are the same responses. Simon the Pharisee rejects Jesus the Messiah. Now, we don't have the end of Simon's story. It's possible that down the line he changed his mind. It's possible he became like a Nicodemus and ultimately came to Christ. But all we have to work with is what Luke gives us. And in that context... Simon says, this is not a prophet. This is not a prophet because he is letting this woman cry all over his feet. And he wouldn't do that if he was a man of God. On the other hand, the sinful wo woman worships Jesus in gratitude. Now, when she comes in there, and washes his feet with her tears and wipes them with her hair and anoints his feet. And Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. He's not saying, because you just did this, I'm forgiving your sins. What's happening is that this lady, somewhere prior to that time, had seen Jesus. Maybe she was in that crowd when Jesus raised that man from the dead. Maybe she saw something else. Maybe she heard some of her or some of his words. But somewhere in that process, this woman who was so unworthy, who was so rejected, who was so full of sin, according to the Pharisees, believed. She saw him, she heard his words. She saw what he did. And just as the people had received John and John's message, she looks at Jesus and she says, this is the Messiah. This is the one who's come. And she knew, just like the people and the tax collectors, knew that they could come back to God. She knew that she could through what she had heard Jesus say. So as she comes in and she is crying and she comes to the Savior and washes his feet and anoints him, she's doing so because she knows that she has been forgiven. Well, she may not know that at that point, but she knows that he is somebody who will forgive her. She, is, she knows just as those people knew that they could come to God as they heard John, she knows this is God's representative. This is the Messiah. And I am trusting in him. And that joy in coming to know him overflowed into a beautiful act of worship 
at the end of that little vignette about John the Baptist, Jesus makes a statement. He says, wisdom is justified by her children. He uses the same word that Luke uses when Luke says, the people and the tax collectors justified God by believing in John. Jesus, as he finishes talking about John the Baptist, says wisdom is justified by her children. What does he mean? This is from the Gospel of John. Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, chapter 3. Jesus says of himself, he who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from above is above all. And he bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Now look at that last verse. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. You see, that's what Luke means when he says the people justified God. Just like Jesus said to Nicodemus, if you accept my testimony, if you accept who I am and who I say I am, you are setting your seal to this, that God is true. In other words, you're saying, this is the true message of God. This is, this is God's word. This is God's Messiah. You are justifying God. The people, even the tax collectors, justified God by being baptized by John. Wisdom, that is God, because often wisdom is a personification or is a, an illustration of God. Wisdom, God is justified by her children, those who receive him. What does it mean to us? We have two miracles that start out that chapter. A centurion says, heal my servant. You don't have to come. Just speak the word. An incredible statement of faith. I believe that you are the son of God. Jesus goes into the village of Nain, raises a man from the dead. Just a word. Didn't touch the man. Two demonstrations of who Jesus is. Then the question is raised in that chapter, are you the one who was to come? Are you really the Messiah? And the answer is given by a lady with a past who comes in and weeps and kneels and says, yes, you are. Yes, you are the Messiah. I began by talking about prison ministry and that day by day in prison you are confronted with your own unworthiness. You wear a tag that says offender. We all wear a tag that says offender. We just can't see it. But we have all broken God's law. We all in and of ourselves stand condemned. because we have fallen short of his glory. John Newton, author of Amazing Grace, 
said, my this is near the end of his life, my memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things. I'm a great sinner, and Christ is a great savior. I love that. Because you see, it's easy to become so overwhelmed by your own unworthiness. If you, if you look inside and you really look through God's eyes, you come to the conclusion that I've often come to, God, I'm not worthy to come into your presence. I feel like that centurion. I'm not worthy to have you under my roof. I'm not worthy to have you in my life. I am not worthy to name your name or to call myself your child. When I look at myself, all I see is my sin and my failure. Great hymn line. My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh my soul. Every one of us in here has different struggles. Every one of us in here has different failures. Every one of us in here bears an invisible tag that says offender, and it's really easy to let that dominate your life, even as a Christian. The great quote by Tim Keller, when we grasp that we are unworthy sinners saved by an infinitely costly grace, it destroys both our self-righteousness and our need to ridicule others. You see, if we justify God by basically saying, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner, and I know that you are my great savior. It takes us out of the realm of Simon the Pharisee. We don't have to justify ourselves. We don't have to bolster, bolster our self-righteousness. And we don't have to put others down. Because although we're great sinners, we have a great savior. But you see, if you don't justify God, if you don't say, yes, God, I agree with what you say about me, then you end up in Simon's seat. But if you look at your life and you say, I am a great sinner, but I have a greater savior, then that sets you free to worship and to serve and to help change others' lives. Somewhere along the line, that lady with a past looked at Jesus Christ and said, I believe. And at that moment, everything changed because she had been forgiven much she now was able to love much. God, if you are in Jesus Christ, God has forgiven you. Your sin, past, present, and future, has been nailed to the cross. And what he wants you and me to do 
is not dwell on our sin. Although it's not bad to remember our sin. But when that sin comes in our mind and that recollection is there, he wants us to realize we are forgiven in him. If you trust Jesus as your Savior, you're forgiven. And now you can worship. And now you can reach out. And now you can minister and you can touch lives. And every time the accuser comes, as he does with me so often, and says, you're not worthy, you can say, you're right. I'm not. I'm a great sinner. But I have a great Savior. Let's pray. Thank you, Father. We are not worthy to come into your presence, and we know that. But we thank you that you sent us a Savior in the person of your Son, Jesus Christ. And in him, we are worthy. And we can worship, and we can praise you, and we can reach out and touch the lives of others. God, be with us as we go forth. And may we honor you with our words, with our attitudes, and with our actions. For we ask in Jesus' name.